Well, good morning. My name is Brian Wright, and I am the district superintendent for the Northern Plains District of the Evangelical Free Church. If you don't know, that's Salem is part of the Evangelical Free Church and part of the Northern Plains District, and I get to minister to and represent kind of the, the larger um, church family that you belong to. And so I am glad to be here, a chance to share with you this morning, give you a little bit of an update on things happening around the district, and then to share with you from the Word of God. A couple of things I want to share with you from around the district. We talk about three things, really, as we focus on uh, what it is that the Northern Plains District is and what we do. And, and the three things are really about having healthy churches and have building partnerships and advancing multiplication, really the three things that we focus on uh, as the Northern Plains District. It's who we are. So let me share with you a couple of things happening in those areas. But healthy churches, one of the things I've been talking about a lot in the last few visits has probably been the need for churches to have pastors. And one of the things we do is we help churches to find pastors and to help people move into, uh, who might have a desire to go into ministry. And, and what does that look like? And how do I get trained for that? And, and how do I find those connections? And so we want to be able to help people move into uh, those spaces. And so we do equip people to do that. We do walk with them through that. It's a, a great news to tell you that as I stand here today, we probably have the fewest number of churches in our district that are looking for pastors since I've had, since I've been in this role, which is great. Uh, some of those are still some long-term searches, and we're still looking uh, for some of those places. So uh, that's still a challenge for many places, but we are working in that area, continue to work in that area. And then we work in, in helping also. Uh, one of the things we're focusing on right now is the idea of having resilient pastors and, and resilient churches. If you don't know what these last few years, and it would be hard not to know it, this has been a difficult and a challenging season for churches and for pastors. And we want to try and do things that allow them to stay in ministry and to stay active in ministry. Things have been happening out of the, the, the stresses of these past years as we've seen uh, pastors not just leaving churches but leaving ministry, and we want to allow them to have the, the resiliency to be able to stay there and have churches be able to come around them and to be able to stand with them and encourage them and strengthen them, and so they can stay together in that process and become more fruitful in the ministry that God has called them to. So we are engaged in those kinds of areas and many others. We talk about... Um, Partnerships, one of the ways that we do that is the conferences and things that we do. And our district conference is coming up. It's the big conference that we do every year. It's going to be at the end of February at Faith Evangelical Free Church up in Grand Forks. And our speaker for that conference is somebody that some of you may remember and know. Greg Scharf is going to be our speaker. Uh, Greg Scharf was a pastor here at Salem, uh, went on to teach at uh, Trinity, our seminary, and then is going to be coming and sharing with us on how leadership works in the church, how we develop leaders for the local church. And so we are very excited to have him there and to be a part of that conference and building that partnership uh, with us. And then we talk about multiplication. It's another part of things we talk about and, and wanting to help churches grow. And last time I was here talking about a golf tournament that we were going to do over the summer uh, to raise funds for church multiplication in the free church, and I was looking for members for the Northern Plains District team. Well, we did get a team together, and we did participate in that golf tournament. Um, we had a lot of fun. We didn't score particularly well in that tournament, and I think it's really because we didn't have Team Hannestead with us. Um, had they been with us, I think we would have scored a little bit better, but uh, we raised about $30,000 from that tournament, and at the end, there was a drawing that was, we put all the district names in a hat, and one district was drawn to receive the funds to be used in the district for church planting, and the district that won that drawing was the Northern Plains District. So we have received about $30,000 to invest in a church multiplication in our district, and our district board and leadership are engaged in how we are going to use those funds uh, to advance multiplication across our district. How can you be a part of what we're doing? How can you partner with us? There's a couple of ways to do that. The most important way is your prayers. 
Uh, we need your prayers to support us and be praying for us as the, the leadership and, and those who work with the, the Northern Plains District, for myself, for Steve Oswald, who is our missions mobilizer, for Brandon Belay, who's our student ministries director, uh, for Mike Lundberg, who is our church multiplication director. Just be praying for them. And just to remind you to pray for them, um, I asked uh, my kids, they said, what could I give out at churches to help people remember to pray for us? And they said, stickers, Dad, stickers. So I have stickers. Uh, put them on your phone, put it on a water bottle, whatever you want to do, but just to remind you something to pray for us uh, as a district. Those are on the, out at the hub back there. You can pick one of those up. encourage you to stop and do that after the service. You can also stay connected with us, be a part of us by just learning about what's going on. You can do that through our website, npdefca.com. Uh, there you can register for that conference. If you'd like to come and join us and be part of the conference, we'd love to have you there. You can sign up for an email newsletter that comes out once a month to share with you things that are going on around the district and, and just to keep up with those kinds of things, the people who are coming and going. And we just encourage you to do that as well. You can find those assets, but just, just stay connected with what's happening. Uh, also, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and stay connected with us there as well. And then uh, it is by your giving is another way that you can be part of what we do. And I want to say thank you to Salem for being a financial partner with us uh, in the Northern Plains District. We appreciate your support. We appreciate also the support of those of you. If you are an individual donor here this morning, I want to say thank you to you especially for those gifts as well. Uh, it is your financial support that allows me and the district to do the work that we do with our district churches and to support them in the ways that we do. And so I want to say thank you to that and thank you for your support and partnering with us in that way. Now, moving on from news about the district, I want to turn and share with you from the Word of God this morning. And we're going to look at a passage from Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. And I'm going to invite you, uh, if you are able, something that I've always done as a pastor to invite people to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you are able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read together from Acts chapter 11. Acts 11, beginning verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent them to Barnabas to Antioch. When they came, they saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. You may be seated. We're going to look at this passage because it reminds us or shows us or teaches us what it looks like to have a flourishing church in a place of exile. And I say that because I think that we are in an increasingly, increasingly understanding that we also live in a place of exile. And that may sound kind of discouraging. That may even sound kind of defeatist, but it is not. 
I want to tell you this morning that being in exile is not something to be feared, but something rather that we can embrace. We, for a long time as a church uh, and as followers of Christ, maybe have lived in a place where the world kind of embraced our similar way of thinking, embraced our views, embraced our values, and we all could feel kind of at home and comfortable in that place. But over the past years, we have felt that beginning to shift and move. And that's not a recent thing. That's been happening for decades. It's been shifting and moving. And maybe the pace of that is accelerating. accelerating. But we begin to feel more and more ill at ease in the place where we live. You see, exile means living somewhere that is not your home. Being in exile means living somewhere that it is not your home country. It is not your home. Sometimes that people live in exile by force or some by voluntarily. And there are lots of things that can move us into exile. But for us, we are in spiritual exile. Sometimes it's natural disasters, sometimes it's political issues, sometimes it's violence or war or famine or disaster. Someone moves us for some reason, moves us out of where we are at home, moves us to a new place. As followers of Jesus Christ, as soon as we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are also moved into exile. In Philippians, it says that our citizenship is in heaven, and that tells us that this is not our home. This is not our home. That's the, the old hymn, right? This world is not our home. Remember that old song. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. And perhaps as we look around and we feel that in our culture and we feel those things begin to change, we are reminded and become more aware of the fact that we are here in exile. I don't want to tell you that's okay. That's not a thing to be frightened of. It's okay. It's something we can actually embrace. Something like 40%, a recent Pew study by the Pew Center found that something like 40% of adults felt that there was a conflict between their religious beliefs and mainstream American culture. We're beginning to more and more feel that sense of disconnect that this is not our home. We begin to feel and feel more like exiles, feel more and more like exiles in this world. We feel those things shift around as things that we once thought, there's no way that that could be, and now it is. And how could this possibly be happening? And how are these things changing? We become more and more disconnected from that, and we begin to feel ourselves in exile. You have to understand that's not something to be afraid of. It's something that we can embrace. The authors of the book, The Great Dechurching, share this paragraph with us. He said, we haven't changed where we live, but where we live is changing fast. And the main question we have to ask is this, can the church flourish in this new society? The Bible tells us the answer is absolutely yes. We need to see the blessings in exile so we won't be afraid of what is ahead of us, and we need to adequately prepare ourselves and our children to be fruitful in this new reality. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. How do we embrace exile? How do we see it? Not something is to be afraid of, but it's something to embrace. And how we look at this church in Antioch, and, and the authors of that book, they point out some blessings in exile from this passage, and I'm going to use those blessings as a kind of a jumping off point for us to talk about this idea of embracing exile. One of the reasons we can embrace exile is that exile is not new to God's people. This is nothing new for the people of God. In fact, it, if you look at the Old Testament, it probably more often than not is the common place of their existence is that they were in exile. It starts with, with Abram being called from his home to come to a new land and to live there in exile, away from his home, awaiting a promise that he never saw completely fulfilled. He lived in exile. And then his descendants would go from there down into Egypt, and they would be in exile there. And they would grow in kind of that, in using Egypt kind of as an incubator for God's people. 
And they would grow there until they became a threat that was viewed, uh, can be viewed by the Egyptians as a threat, and they began to be persecuted there. And then eventually, they would have Moses come, and Moses would lead them out of that and back to their homeland, although they were a little disobedient on the way there, so they got themselves a bonus 40 years in exile on the way. And then once they come into their own land, they live there, and that disobedience actually continues, and so they are sent once again into exile in Babylon and in Persia, and God uses that as a way to chasten them and to discipline them and to focus them back on who they are and what they are to be about as the people of God, to bring, in, to bring new, renewed obedience to them. And they do finally come back to their homeland, back to their physical home, but even once they get there, they are still, in a sense, in exile because now they find themselves under the control of foreign rulers whether it was the Macedonians or after that empire breaks up, it was the Tomies and the Seleucids and then eventually the Romans. They were not at home there either. They were essentially in exile in the same place where they lived because they were in the control of a foreign power. They lived in exile most of their existence. It's not new to God's people. Exile is also not new to the church. Exile is not new to the church. The church is birthed into a culture that was very religiously diverse. There were lots of different ideas, all kinds of different thoughts about what religious uh, teachings would be. There are all kinds of temples, all kinds of gods. It was very pagan. Worship this rock, worship the sun, worship the moon, all kinds of things of that nature, and very permissive in the attitudes of the culture. Very permissive, very pagan, very diverse. Hmm, that actually sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? And yet it's that place that the church was birthed and it flourished. They were never the center of influence. They were never the center of power, but yet they made a huge difference. They flourished and they saw many, many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of that kind of culture. A place where Christianity was in fact outlawed because they had to give loyal, in order to be a loyal Roman citizen, you had to pledge your loyalty to Caesar. You had to say, Caesar is Lord. And that was not uh, a statement of like just allegiance, like a pledge of allegiance. That was an acknowledgement that Caesar was God, that Caesar was God. And the Christians wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bend that knee. They wouldn't give that pledge because they understood that only God was God, and they would only acknowledge Him as God. And so Christianity was outlawed, and they were persecuted because of that. They were persecuted sometimes regionally, sometimes empire-wide, and one of those persecutions that happened was in Jerusalem. That one not driven by the Romans, but that one driven by Jewish officials there, by the Jewish religious officials of the day who were threatened by this rising tide of this new Christian faith that had come up in Jerusalem, and they wanted to do something to stop it. And so they seized one of the leaders of the church, Stephen, to stone him for the blasphemy of saying that Jesus was God. And Stephen gave a tremendous message defending that position from the Old Testament and explaining who God, who Jesus was and what He had come to do. And at the end of that, they still chose to stone Him. And out of the fear of that and out of the, the reaction to that stoning and that persecution in Jerusalem, the people, the Christians in, that, in Jerusalem begin to scatter around the world, begin to scatter to new places and to different places to get away from that persecution. And some of those people went to a place called Antioch and began a new church there. And we're going to look at that church, a church in exile, and how God moved in that church and how that church thrived in exile and accomplished what God had placed them there to do. There's nothing new for the church to be in exile. One of the things that we see there in this church that now comes into exile, oh, and by the way, that persecution 
that was started there? There was a guy in the corner, if you read about that, there was a guy in the corner named Saul who was holding the coats for the people who were doing the stoning. This is Saul who would become a great persecutor of the church until he had a meeting with Jesus Christ who confronted him, and Saul, the, the persecutor of the church, became Paul, the great missionary of the church. And it was that persecution that Saul was so active in that led to the starting of the church in Antioch. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. As we begin to look at this church in Antioch, and what are the blessings that we see in being a church in exile from the church in Antioch, the first one that we see is that, the ex, that exile promotes the advancement of the gospel. Exile promotes the advancement of the gospel. That there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord." What we see happening is because of this persecution, because the church found itself in a place of exile, new things began to happen. They began to reach new people in new places with new methods. The new place and the new people were that they came to a place called Antioch. That was a new place to preach the gospel. It had not been preached there before. So it moved them out into a new place, into new people there. And initially those new people were Jews in Antioch. But then there also was a new method that was employed in Antioch that they decided to preach not just to the Jews, but also to the Hellenists. Those were Greek-speaking Gentiles. This is the first time that we see the gospel actively being proclaimed to Gentiles in the New Testament. Now, if you look back to the last chapter, the door had been opened to that with Peter as he was called to the house of Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, who placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and his whole household chose to follow Jesus Christ, and that was reported to the church, and now that news has trickled out, and they've taken that knowledge with them off to Antioch, and now they reach and say, you know what? Peter was called to preach to a Gentile. Maybe we should preach to Gentiles too. And they began to preach to the Hellenists, to the Gentiles, and a great number believed. New places, new people, new methods. And the same thing is happening with the church as we begin to feel this exile in our moment. You see, if we are comfortable in our world, if we are comfortable where we exist, if we feel like the rest of the world kind of agrees with us and kind of in the, is in the same place as we are, and the culture around us is kind of in the same place as we are, one of the things that we can lose as the church is we can lose our evangelistic zeal. We can lose our passion to share good news with people around us because we kind of think everybody knows already. And so there is not the, the motivation there to share but here in this moment, in this moment of exile, the church feels that, and as they go out, they feel that, and it advances the gospel. And the same thing happens with the church today. The more we feel that disconnect, the more we feel that discomfort, the more we recognize that there are more and more people around us who do not know Jesus and who need to know about the good news of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that He brings and the salvation that He brings, it ought to reignite in us our evangelistic zeal to reach those people for Christ. It ought to motivate us to proclaim good news to them. We are to be motivated. We have to begin to look with our communities with missionary eyes and realize that while we have been sending missionaries around the world to proclaim the, that good news to people who needed to hear it for hundreds of years, now we can look around and those people that we've been sending missionaries to proclaim it to, they are all coming to us. They are here. 
They are our neighbors. They are our friends. They are our co-workers. They are all around us. I spoke with one lady after the first service. I said, man, what you shared is exactly right. And she's got discipleship going on with, with ladies from, from Haiti and ladies from Muslim backgrounds. And, and the world is coming here. And we have the opportunity to share with them. I loved the time that I got to go down and do pastor training on the island of Haiti. And I loved going and working with the people there. I loved the churches there and I loved the people there. But now the political situation there makes that just really untenable for me to go and do that at this moment. But you know what? So the largest population of Haitians in any one city is, of course, Port-au-Prince, the largest Haitian city uh, in the world. You know where the second largest population of Haitians lives in one city? It's Miami, Florida. And then after that, I think it's New York is, I think, maybe number three, and then Chicago might be number five. But they are here. And that is the same for so many other people groups that God is bringing to us and giving us the opportunity to share with them good news for people who need to hear it, people who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are right here all around us. We need to look at our communities with the eyes of missionaries. We also need to recognize how that changes with new methods that we have, not a different gospel, but new methods that we have as churches, new ways to approach being church and doing church. Ed Stetzer was writing about this in a recent uh, uh, edition of Outreach Magazine and talking about the changes that are happening in churches. And one of the things he says, summarizing it, says this, there is a de-emphasis on Sunday worship and a stronger focus on small groups and ministry outside the four walls of the church, an elevation of the church scattered throughout the week, living the mission versus the model of the past era focused on inviting people to church. There's a recognition of a reality. Church matters. Right? Being here gathered together matters. Being built up and equipped together matters. But here's the reality. You all are out there a lot more than you are in here. And the impact that you can make as the church is so much greater out there if you will live for Christ where He has placed you, where you work, where you live, touching your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family in the name of Jesus Christ. It's so much more effective for you to reach them and to meet them out there and to minister the name of Jesus Christ out there versus trying to have all of them have to come here before we can minister to them. We do it out there. There's an emphasis for the church scattered and the power that it has on mission there. And new technology, live streaming, Zoom meetings, all the kinds that we're doing, right? The last couple of years has really accelerated that. Lots of churches are moving that direction already. I remember when I was a pastor a few years ago down in Owatonna, still doing that in the midst of the pandemic, and we were just doing the live stream thing. And I remember looking at the views of our live stream online. And I'm like, man, who's looking at our live stream? So I looked it up afterwards, and our little live stream, we had 3,000 views. Now, I don't know how that really works. Maybe one person clicked on it 3,000 times. I don't know. But I looked at it and I'm like, man, we're a mega church. <laughs> what I do know is that there were people in our church who had friends in faraway places who were struggling and who were hurting. And they said, hey, you know what? Our church is online now. Why don't you come and listen with us to what our pastor has to say to you about the good news of Jesus Christ? And they were logging in and listening. It gave us a chance to reach people, embracing new technologies, which is what the church has always done. Remember way back in the day, there was this brand new technology for the church that had never been tried before and used before. We used it pretty effectively. It was called the printing press. We used that pretty effectively. Remember when radio, there were days when radio was a brand new thing and missionaries began to recognize that radio waves can go across borders into places that missionaries can't go. 
and people came to know Jesus Christ. Even in our country, there are lots of people who have testimony today about how they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and where that started was they heard something on the radio. It could go into people's homes and cars and places that could, we couldn't get to all the time, but they could hear the message there. And now we have new tools to do that as well, new methods. Exile promotes the advancement of the gospel. Exile also is where we learn to depend upon God. Exile reminds us to depend on God. There's not a lot more for me to say on that point. It says that the report came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad. There's a recognition here. One commentator puts it simply, and there's not much more to say than this, that this remarkable expansion of the church came about only by God's power and not by human wisdom or skill. When we again are in comfortable places, we begin to think that we have all the tools and all the ability and we can do it and it's all about us and what we can do. The more we become uncomfortable, the more we realize how much we must depend upon God to succeed in what He has called us to do. A constant reliance upon Him. Exile is where we learn to depend on the Lord. Exile also requires discipleship requires us to be focused and intentional in discipleship. Barnabas gets there and he sees all these new believers. He says, we have to do something. We have to ground these believers. We have to get them to truly know what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to live that out head, heart, and hands in their lives. And so he went and he found Saul to come and teach them. And yeah, same Saul. So remember, the church in Antioch started because there was a persecution in Jerusalem, and Saul was holding the coats for the people who were doing the stoning that was part of that persecution. And now, because of that persecution, there's a church in Antioch with a whole bunch of new believers, and Barnabas goes and gets Saul, who was holding the coats, to come and help teach the discipleship class for the church in Antioch that started because of the persecution that Paul was a part of. Isn't God cool? (laughs) Only God could figure out and organize that one. And wouldn't you love to be a part of that class? Paul and Barnabas for a year, discipling the people there, helping them grow in their faith. We need to do the same thing. We need to be intentional in the world where, again, culture becomes something uncomfortable. Culture becomes something that does not reinforce what we teach. It does not uh, support what the, the, the truth that we know that is there in Scripture and sometimes is, is opposed and antithetical to that truth. We need to be very intentional in how we disciple people and what it means to live for Jesus Christ, head, heart, and hands in their everyday life. And as churches, we have to have clear thought out plans about how we do that and how we do that effectively and intentionally as a church body. We have to have that for our children and think about how we do that in children from elementary to middle school to high school to college and beyond and to do that effectively so that they will be able to have a faith that they will own and that will be theirs personally, that they will live out head, heart, and hands as adults in this world. We have to be very focused and very intentional about our discipleship. And also, being in exile reminds us of who we really are. It says there's a little throwaway line at the end of that paragraph that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And understand, when that word was coined for followers of Jesus Christ, that was not a word that was complimentary. That was not a word that was a word of respect or honor or anything else. It was a word that was actually used as a term of derision and ridicule. It was, oh, you're part of the party of Christ. You're one of those Christians. That's kind of the tone. And yet, they owned it, right? They owned it. Yeah, we are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. 
In, in our world, we have sports teams that people will get really excited about and really pumped up about, and, and people all wear their jerseys, and they're all fans of that when things are going really well. But then when that team turns and falls on hard times, all those kind of go back in the drawer, and nobody wants to wear them anymore unless you're like a hardcore fan of that team. I'm kind of one of those. I grew up in Nebraska, so I grew up as a fan of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, and that was in the 80s and the early 90s, and it was great to be a Cornhusker fan. We were winning national championships. I remember a Fiesta Bowl when we absolutely demolished the University of Florida and winning a national championship that year. It was great to be a Cornhusker. Now you go, go Cornhuskers, and you kind of get crickets. <laughs> I thought it was great when we moved into the Big Ten. We could at least go beat up on the University of Minnesota once a year. Yeah, that hasn't worked out. Um, Still have my Cornhusker stuff, still root for the Huskers on Saturday, still a fan. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, Christian maybe once was a term that had some respectability in our culture and in our world, but more and more that term is beginning again to be a term of ridicule and derision. Will we still own it? Will we still say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus? I am of the party of Jesus. It is a reminder of what, again, what I referred to at the beginning with Paul writes in Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. As reflecting that, the EFCA wrote a document this year kind of commenting on our contemporary issues, and one of the things it says in that document is this, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, King Jesus' rule and reign transcends all other citizenships and partisan ideologies and transforms how we live in the world. Do we own that? Is Jesus the one who owns our soul allegiance above any ideology, among any political party, among any philosophy, among any system? Do we acknowledge that Jesus Christ alone is our head and we own allegiance to Him alone and we ought to live in the world the way He calls us to live like Him? Will we do that? Exile makes us generous. It says, now in those days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined that everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it by the elders, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It reminds us of the needs. Being in exile reminds us of the needs of our fellow exiles, and it makes us generous to help them. They helped the church in Jerusalem when there was a famine. We have the opportunity to help our fellow exiles around the world when there is need for them. I think about this morning, our fellow exiles in places like Ukraine who are meeting in churches there this morning and ministering in that place and seeking to minister the good news of Jesus Christ in a place that is so hard and so difficult. They need us to stand with them and to support them. Or how about a place like this morning? How about this morning truly being an exile and being a Palestinian Christian this morning and how difficult that is to live out your faith in that place. And they need us to stand with them as well. We stand with our fellow exiles and we are generous in supporting them. It also reminds us to be generous to those actually in the communities where we are placed as exiles. 
Jeremiah 29, 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It is one of the unique things about being sent into exile than that command. Once, when we understand that we are in exile, we are not called to then withdraw from the place that we live, but rather we are called to engage the place where we live for its benefit and for its welfare. Being in exile does not mean withdrawing and isolating from the place where we live. It means engaging the place where we live for its good, for its benefit, and obviously for the chance to share the good news of the gospel in that place. We are called to be generous both inside and out. Now, we've talked about how we are exiles and what the church does and the blessings of the church Uh, being a church in exile, and how that advances the gospel, how it forces us to depend upon God, how it reminds us to be intentional in our discipleship, and how it moves us to remember who we are and to be generous. I want to speak for just a moment about how we live as individual Christians in exile as well. I can't walk away from this topic and from this point without touching on this, and and 1 Peter is where we read about that. And let me share with you that verse very quickly. This is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." There are three things I see out of that passage about how we live as individual Christians in exile. And the first one is this, we are called not to be angry, but to be holy. One of the reactions we can have is we begin to feel this disconnect, we begin to feel this exile around us, and we begin to feel that we are more and more uncomfortable here is we can become angry about it, and we can become bitter about it. And that can be the position in which we engage out of that anger and that bitterness with the world around us, and we are called not to do that. Rather, we are to control the desires of our flesh. We are to place those things under His control, and we are to live as holy as Jesus would live in that place. Not angry, not bitter, but as holy before the world. And in that, the second one is like that. It said we are called not to be malicious, but to be honorable. Out of that bitterness and anger, it is very easy to engage in the world with a way that is malicious and angry and vengeful and just nasty and critical where we want to scream at everybody because of all of the the things that they are saying that we see so much wrong with and we want to express that anger in such strong and passionate ways. But understand, we look at that world, you know what? They are sinners without a Savior. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the truth. And what are we going to do with people who don't know the truth? We're going to yell at them for it? We're going to scream at them for it. We're going to berate them for it. We're going to belittle them for it. Where in Scripture does it call us to do that? It calls us to love them. It calls us to share with them. It calls us to be compassionate with them. We are called to be honorable. So that when they point to us and say, look at all the bad things they do, people would look at us and go, what bad things? Look at all the good they do. Look at their good deeds and be honorable among them. Let us be honorable. And the last one is not to be in fear, but have hope. It calls us not to fear, but to hope. We can look at it and go, where is it going? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Let me tell you what's going to happen. I'll tell you confidently what's going to happen. And I'm not a prophet. I don't have the gift of prophecy, but I know what's going to happen because the Bible tells me. Things will get worse. People will get worse. Sin will advance. God will still be sovereign and the church will still work until eventually Jesus comes back and puts everything right and we live with him forever. How about that? That's hope. I don't have to be afraid. I know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back and put everything right and we'll live with Him forever. Amen. Amen. 
I have hope. I don't have to be afraid. So let us live as exiles. Let us live as those who are holy and honorable and hopeful in His return. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for calling us to be exiles, to acknowledge this world is not our home and that we can live here not in fear, but we can embrace the blessings of life in exile, advance the gospel, depend on You, be intentional in teaching and discipling the next generation in Your name, remember who we are and to be generous with those in need. May we live faithfully as exiles for You. Amen.